for The Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Visit us online at faith.yale.edu. Here's a fact of human life. We have sorrow. And in many ways, that's neither here nor there, neither good nor bad. But we know intuitively that there are ways in which our sorrow can become excessive or misplaced. So the virtue of patience does is it moderates sorrow or constrains it. And that's why someone like Gregory the Great called patience the guardian of the virtues. Because sorrow, if it's not checked, can easily devolve into anger, hatred, and fear. What it means to moderate sorrow isn't to suppress it or to develop some kind of affected callousness or disenchanted, jaded relation to the things that one actually really loves. You'll discover really quickly that you can't think about patience, you can't experience patience without thinking about and experiencing joy. Joy is the antithesis of sorrow. It's its remedy. This is For the Life of the World, a podcast about seeking and living a life worthy of our humanity. I'm Ryan mcnally Lins with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. We're at the midpoint of a series on patience, why it's so hard, what's good about it, and how we might cultivate it. One of the reasons I wanted to explore this virtue in this format is the growing sense of my own impatience. The clear evidence that modern technological culture prefers and valorizes impatience, and my hunch that this difficult virtue can offer us some peace and hope right now. So we started off framing the issue with Andy Root and Catherine Tanner, reflecting on our loss of the sacred weight of time and our struggle to escape time scarcity in a finance-dominated capitalistic economy where time is money. Last week, we pivoted to thinking more deeply about patience itself, with Paul Daffod Jones suggesting that it's God's patience that gives time its sacred weight and God's patience that enables human agency at all. And really, It's impossible to ignore the timing of this series. Life a year into the pandemic lends itself to a kind of numbness, a torpor, a temptation to despair at the thought of re-entering a Delta variant lockdown. We waited so long to loosen restrictions. Many of us, myself included, exhibit either denial or dread at diving back into more waiting, more practice with patience. But still, we have to wait. And indeed, it was my inability to wait, my temptation to hurry, and my compulsion to fill every waking moment of life with productivity that was the impetus for this series. But as we'll learn in today's episode, there's something much deeper than waiting, hurry, and busyness that patience corrects. Lurking underneath all of that buzzing activity and urgency is in fact sorrow. Adam Idle is an ethicist at Yale Divinity School who specializes in the thought of Thomas Aquinas. In this episode, he and I discuss the human side of the virtue of patience and its place in the moral life, examining how it moderates our passions and responses to sorrow, finding surprising connections between patience, joy, and contemplation, and opening up toward an experiential theology that must comment on patience only from inside the struggle to receive it. Thanks for listening. Adam, thanks for coming by and taking some time to talk with us. Ryan, I'm happy I'm here. So you're a scholar of Thomas Aquinas, and I thought maybe we could start 
with you setting the scene. Thomas has some really interesting stuff to say about patience and some stuff that is maybe surprisingly relevant for today since he's thinking it 700 and something years ago. But set the scene. Where is he thinking about patience? What's the context? How to set the stage. Let's just begin with that honorific, the angelic doctor. You hear this about Thomas. This and It's a an apt description, but it gives this impression that he's a man out of time. He's sort of like riding serenely over the hurly-burly of history, and that's just not the case. His earliest works, and actually all of his works, are born out of intense conflict. At the time, he's thinking about patience, and indeed the thing that requires him to begin thinking about patience, the virtue, I mean, is that he and his brethren, the friars of the order of preachers, this newly founded ragtag amorphous uh, group of, of young men who've taken to the streets of Paris, Boulogne, Cologne, and so on and so forth, all the way to the Mongol Empire. They are holed up here in St. Jacques, the convent in Paris, and there are people throwing rocks at the friars. When they leave the convent, they are they're assaulted with dead animals and straw and feces, and they're utterly despised at this moment in, in history. So he's thinking about this thing called patience, this virtue, and a whole collection of virtues that are related to it in the context of deep opposition, deep public hatred, scorn. Look, the friars they have been or on the or on the verge of being canceled i don't mean that in the loaded sense that it might sound it might you might imagine but it's not a good scene right there there are ecclesiastical authorities who are after them yep. there's a kind of popular movement that's been stirred up not to be so happy with them and we could have a whole other conversation about why that is what they're doing that seems so controversial but let's let's just take that as granted and say so here Thomas is, and one of the things he wants to say to his fellow friars is there's this thing called patience, and it is essential to our life of faith and discipleship and our mission of preaching. A couple of times you said that patience is, for Thomas, a virtue. Could you just really quickly say, what's a virtue? Yeah, virtue is a habit of the mind. Uh, a habit of mind and or heart that makes a human being good and their work good. It's the thing, or because there are virtues, the things by which human beings are made praiseworthy, excellent, and in turn by which their activity, their conduct, their comportment, their way in the world can be rightly described as a kind of excellence. So we think of the cardinal virtues, justice, prudence, fortitude, temperance. These are all virtues in the sense that they, uh, to have them is to have a kind of excellence and to be able in the right context or the right circumstances to do excellent things. So what kind of virtue is patience in particular? Where does it sit in that schema? Yeah. Oh, this is a really interesting question. And you can't start all the way at the beginning. All right, let's start here. For Thomas, virtues are distinguished by a couple of things, namely their matter and their object. Their object is related to their act. The matter of patience 
is principally, we'll have to unpack this, it's principally sorrow. The matter of a virtue, it's the thing that it's about, the thing that it regards, the thing that it goes to work on to shape excellently. So here's a fact of human life. We have sorrow. And in many ways, that's neither here nor there, neither good nor bad. But we know intuitively that there are ways in which our sorrow can become excessive or misplaced. So if I sorrow over your well-being, if you're if you are promoted and and I sorrow over that, that's called envy. And and that's not a good kind of sorrow. Uh likewise if I if something's genuinely grievous, something that really ought to beckon my my sorrow to elicit it, something doesn't elicit my sorrow that really should. We think, you know, there's something, some kind of short circuit here. There's a lack of sorrow, hardness of heart. So sorrow can have right and wrong objects. It can also be excessive and, and, it, and it, can, it can fall short uh, of, its, of, of a kind of mean. Sorrow for Thomas is this passion, this affection, what we today call an emotion. And its object, it's elicited by presence of evil. And here you don't think of like Dr. Evil, evil just in the very general sense of something that we apprehend as being bad, something as we apprehend or experience in some way as diminishing our good or the good of someone we love. And look around the world and the objects of sorrow or the things I should say that are liable to generate sorrow in our lives are legion. They're everywhere. And with every emotion, there's a kind of tendency to excess. And what the virtue of patience does is it moderates sorrow or constrains it. So it doesn't go beyond its, its proper limit. When we become too absorbed in trouble and woe, then we have a tendency to a lot of other things start to go wrong. And that's why someone like Gregory the Great called patience the guardian of the virtues because sorrow if it's not checked can easily devolve into anger hatred and fear and when those passions they become too excessive then other kinds of virtues begin to deteriorate we begin to oppose things that, that we ought not oppose or oppose them in ways that we ought not ought to oppose and so on and so forth. So patience is this virtue that constrains sorrow, and it's a kind of guardian of the virtues in that sense. So what does it feel like to be patient on this account? Like what's yeah. what sort of thing happening in you is Thomas imagining and hoping yeah. might happen in in these friars? <sighs> wow, that's something I've thought a lot about in the last couple of years. And this this I hope this won't be too much of a digression, but if you know anything about virtue or people who, who like to think and talk about the virtues, you have some familiarity with virtue theory and the way that virtues are are acquired. You know, there are these handy stories that one will tell, like the kind of story you'll read in a book by Alastair McIntyre, like After Virtue, where, you know, to acquire a virtue, any virtue is to, it's basically a process of trial and error and emula, emulation of a worthy exemplar. There are these external goods that initially motivate the enterprise and the hope, and it is a hope. There's a kind of 
gap here that one has to cross. The hope is that eventually one comes to see the goods internal to this this practice, and that's how you acquire these virtues. So it's a kind of faking it until you make it. That's a bit pejorative, but you're, it's through practice. We become better harpists, as Aristotle says, how well by playing the harp, so too we become more just by practicing justice. So I'm coming back to this question of what's it feel like to, to be patient? But I first want to register this. What on earth could it mean to gradually expose yourself to sorrow in hopes that one day, one day you're going to acquire this thing called patience and no longer be swamped, overwhelmed, bent, but not broken by it. Sorry, sorrow just doesn't work like that. If you don't have patience, you know, you know in the in the face of tragedy, it's already too late. Sorrow, especially grievous sorrow, is just not the kind of thing that you can endure. And it's not like a callus you build up on your hand. It's either there or it's not. Right. You don't just, you, you can't just dip your toes in and yeah. then get a little further in. It's, it, it befalls you. Yeah. It, yeah. So it's interesting to think about patience in this respect because Thomas thinks of it as being a part of fortitude or courage. Courage, it's about, at its core, it's about the worst kind of difficulties, the worst and most fearful things, and that's the danger of death. Okay. If you think of patience at its core, what it's mainly about is about the saddest things. That's what it's about. Those are things that no one goes looking for. It's really interesting. Patience and many other virtues besides patience, but patience is especially interesting because it pushes and I think breaks a lot of the models that people have for thinking about what a virtue is, how it's acquired. And it requires you, if you really begin to look at Thomas, look at what he says, look beyond those works like the Summa, that if anyone's read any Thomas, they've read that. But you begin to look at the other things he says, you'll discover really quickly that you can't think about patience, you can't experience patience without thinking about and experiencing joy. Why why is that? That's a little surprising. Yeah. Okay, well, so joy is the as far as passions go, antithesis of sorrow. It's its remedy. So joy for Thomas is an affection, an emotion, a passion evoked by, elicited by, called forth by the presence of some good that's loved. So there are many remedies for sorrow, but all of those remedies, Thomas says, will involve in some way putting yourself in the presence of something good in some respect. And in fact, sorrow, so he gives us this great big treatise on passions. There's never, there was never anything like it uh, before it, and there's never been anything like it again. It's voluminous, and it takes up this massive part of the first part of the second part of the Summa. But sorrow is the only passion that he discusses where he pauses in the discourse to give the reader a list of remedies for. And the remedies are roughly in this order. Take a bath, go to sleep, drink some wine, talk to a friend. I mean, I don't think the idea isn't if this doesn't work, then do this. If this doesn't, but there's a kind of ascending order of, of joy of maximizing. And at the top of that list is contemplation. It's the contemplation of God. Contemplation for Thomas is this big umbrella term that includes meditation, prayer, meditative reading 
the meditative reading of scripture, even it you might as a stretch even say chanting the Psalms, any anything that draws your mind to the goodness of God, to the power of God's presence, to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, to the love shed abroad in our hearts that pours forth from the blood shed for us by Christ on the cross. These things, if we are disposed in the right kind of way, are absolutely good in in a way that that can call forth our affections. So they can elicit joy. And so what you need, and the psalmist says this all the time in the commentary in the Psalms, the psalmist, David, Thomas thinks it, he's always reading the words of David. David says, oh Lord, these guys are trying to kill me. What am I going to do? Their arrows are firing hot and they're coming fast and furiously. And then David will say, if only I had wings to fly like a dove or something to this effect, or then there's this turn of the discourse toward God. And Thomas will seize on this time and time again and say, look, here David is, He's swamped with sorrow. He's overwhelmed with, with um, because his sons abandoned him and turned on him because his child has died. Yeah. And so he'll say, what is the cause of his patience? How does he endure? And he will point to contemplation, toward prayer, toward meditation. And, and then he'll start to use phrases like in his commentary in Psalm 33, the experience experience of God, experientia dei. When when the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is sweet, Thomas says, look, the psalmist is exhorting us to an experience of God. And so this is very scandalous to most virtue theorists to think that there would be a virtue that would be caused by, by a kind of an activity that doesn't really register legibly as a serious activity on in, in modern life. But you can't have patience, or at least not much of it, Thomas thinks, without, without contemplation. That's drawing my mind to some scriptural texts in the New Testament. It's almost like Thomas is saying there's a, there's a connection between rejoice in the Lord always, and then that kind of Pauline emphasis on the ability to bear yes. everything. Yeah, uh, that's so right. Why? Like, how does connection to the goodness of God, what does it do to sorrow? What does yeah. it do to the fact that the kind of evil that provokes sorrow is still there? Right. I want to, I want to comment this question from so many angles, but it might help us take a step back to say something like what it means to moderate sorrow isn't to suppress it or to develop some kind of affected callousness or disenchanted, jaded relation to the things that one actually really loves. The virtues that go to work on our passions, and not every virtue does, but a lot of them do, they they constrain or in some ways, in the case of courage, actually evokes this passion of daring. All right. But the virtues that go to work on the passions, they don't extinguish the passions. That's what Thomas says in his earliest work on patience. They moderate it. That means that patience 
never means simply ignoring, turning away from the thing that's genuinely sorrowful, right? It can't be any part of virtue to tell lies about the misery of the world. So that's that. A sorrow, a concrete object of sorrow can be, the sorrow that one experiences can be diminished by attending to other objects, other things that elicit joy. And that's not, that doesn't mean that one one looks away from the, the sorrowful thing, so to speak, but you nest that sorrowful thing amid other things that are genuinely good and praiseworthy and call forth our, our affection. I mean, and just remember one of those things that I mentioned, you know, it's just spending time with your friends. It may sound as I'm talking about it now, like this is this purely cognitive activity of moderating sorrow. It can't be. Sorrow itself really doesn't permit that because it, it diminishes our cognitive capacities. That's one way of moderating sorrow. Another way is to modulate one's understanding of the thing that is sorrowful. So this is what Paul is doing, Thomas thinks, in the commentary, I think it's on 1 Thessalonians, right? People have died. People have fallen asleep. And we know that this was a surprise to them. And so Paul here is, he's saying something like, sorrow, but not like you might sorrow if you weren't expecting the resurrection of the dead. That's not just the resuscitation of a body. That's a new vista. That's a new reality that all things are being hastened into. All things you and your loved one. And right. So this isn't false hope. This isn't false consolation. I mentioned the word hope. This is another passion in an interesting way. It brings a kind of joy with it in in many cases. So you can think, for example, or pray that you can begin to think or ask your friends to remind you, to help you to see something that's grievous, genuinely so, in a redeemed light. And so, again, this kind of thrusts the virtue of patience back on this whole, um, this the, the realm of meditation on scripture and things like that. What you're doing is, in the technical language of the scriptum or the summa, you are building syllogisms and premises in your mind that, without which you can't that actually affect the way you see the world. The dead will be raised. So there's the diminishment of sorrow on the one hand by nesting that thing amid things that are, are joyful and then modulating in a better accordance with the truth, your understanding of the thing that's bringing the sorrow with it. Yeah. Thank you. This is really interesting. Thomas, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, I get going. And, and you've spent a lot of time with it. And I'm wondering, would it be okay if I ask, like, how has it mattered to you? What difference sure. has it made for you to think with Thomas on patience? I don't know how to answer this question except for one way. And it's, may take me a second to to get it out. A couple of years ago I was working on this chapter on patience and it was just I was just it was like a cake. I was baking it and then unbaking it, baking it and then unbaking it, if that were possible. I was living in this chapter and in a way that didn't make much sense to me. Looking back at this now, I was I kept on hitting these roadblocks and I can even I can just see God's provision in it because as I was trying to finish this chapter on patience 
our our son was he was stillborn he was you know he was 39 weeks he was and some change he was yeah he was his umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck and he died and that hit me like like a truck and then a bolt of lightning and then a tsunami and you know wash rinse repeat it was it was i'd never experienced something so traumatic and it just it whittled us down to to nothing and if it were not i think for all the thinking i'd been doing the writing that i'd been trying to do about this virtue I don't know how I would have been able to withstand the onslaught of the sorrow. But you know, I felt when you read Thomas, you're not just reading Thomas, you're reading this chorus of voices who he makes himself accountable to. And I felt, and I I admit this is a very Catholic idea, I confess, but I felt myself surrounded by this great chorus of saints, this great cloud of witnesses and who came who came alive to me. And I began to think about the what these people were living through when writing about things like patience and discovered it really is this kind of thing that you can write about really only from the inside of. Not that I've written very much about it since, but it wasn't out of some superior insight on my part where I was thinking, man, I'd better know what patience is and I'd better have a bit of it in order to, in order to live my life. Um, but I'm fortunate and I won't say that I, I won't call myself a patient man in the sense I'm using it now, but I felt carried by grace through those moments, those days and months. And I suppose even a year or more by God's grace that was illuminating for me the things that I'd been marinating in on the topic. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that story. I wonder if we might end by just giving you an opportunity to speak directly to a listener. Sure. And just what exhortation would you give with this conversation kind of rattling around in the back of your head? What would be like the word of encouragement or exhortation that you would offer to close? Nowadays, we talk about patience colloquially. And by it, we mean something like a person's capacity to remain calm in the face of delay or agitation. And that has a remote relationship to patience as we've been describing it. But it's not so remote. We get agitated by delay and by things that are agitating. So uh, the two-part exhortation would be, on the one hand, isn't it interesting and might it not be useful to stop and ask, Beneath this agitation, which is low-grade kind of anger, might there be something more basic, some sorrow? What's, what 
is has been lost what am i wanting that's not here what have i what has been taken away that was here what's beneath the anger some kind of sorrow uh what is it so i guess and that question is just worked up right out of the the theoretical relations between the passions or the affections or emotions that's the first part the second part is find that verse of scripture that is for you a kind of anchor in the soul for patience and let it become yours and let God speak to you through it over and over again thanks man been really great having you thanks Ryan We've been through four installments of our six-episode series on patience. Having now framed the cultural and economic predicament of our broken relationship to time, and examined both divine and human patience and their role in modern life, in the final episodes of this series, we'll turn to the practical question of how patience is acquired and how it's expressed in a flourishing life. That starts next week with a look at the psychology of patience. Thanks for listening and working through this series with us. For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale Divinity School. This episode featured ethicist Adam Idle and theologian Ryan McAnally Linz. Production assistance by Martin Chan and Nathan Jowers. I'm Evan Rosa, and I edited and produced the show. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu. New episodes drop every Saturday, with the occasional midweek. If you're new to the show, we're so glad that you found us. Remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And if you've been listening for a while, thank you, friends. If you're liking what you're hearing, I've got a request. Would you support us? It's pretty simple, really, and won't take much time. Here are some ideas. First... You could hit the share button for this episode in your app and send a text or email to a friend or share it to your social feed. Second, you could give us an honest rating on Apple Podcasts. How are we really doing? Finally, you could write a short review of the show in Apple Podcasts. Reviews are cool because they'll help like-minded people get an idea for what we're all about and what's most meaningful to you, our listeners. Thanks for listening today, friends. We'll be back with more this coming week. 